Hello, you are watching the La Novelle Esprit video series on the theology of the body. In this video, we are discussing audience 38. We are your hosts. I am Jeremy Hossauter. And I'm Guillermo Moreno. So something to keep in mind with this audience is that it and several of the preceding ones and several of the ones after it are all focused on interpreting Matthew 5, verses 27 through 28, the meaning of those verses in the context of Jesus' listeners. The, these verses are part of the Sermon on the Mount, and so we are focusing on understanding how did the Jews in Jesus' time understand these words so the verses state, let's see a quote. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, whoever looks at a woman to desire her has already committed adultery with her in his heart, end quote. So when we talk about audience 38, this is focusing on this part, but I say unto you, whoever looks to desire. Okay. So audiences 35, 36, 37 was all about the content, the meaning of the sixth commandment. And now we are talking about this part, whoever looks to desire. And that begins with audience 38. It'll take us through audience 39 and 40, 41. And then in audience 42, JB2 will begin his analysis of the last part of Matthew 5, verse 28, about the adultery committed in the heart. And that takes us through audience from 42 through 43. All right. So let's dive into the text of audience 38 now. So Christ's words here from Matthew 5, we can note that there are a polemic against the teachers of the law and a polemic against the ethos of the Old Testament because the Old Testament took a causalistic interpretation of the sixth commandment. So the command to not commit adultery was taken in a way, was taken a legalistic manner of interpreting what are the kind of parameters required for a functioning society. But within those laws, the Old Testament law promoted polygamy, which is counter to the actual content of the Sixth Commandment. The Sixth Commandment of not committing adultery requires monogamy. And so there's institutionalized sin within the legal structure of some of the laws of the Israelites and Jews. And so Christ here, and it his words, but I say unto you, is a transition to the new ethos that would be the Christian 
way of life. And it's leaving behind this legislative casuistic view that dominated the Old Testament ethos. And it returns ethos to the heart of man. So it's a return to this inner dimension, to this interpersonal relationship between the husband and wife. So then the words, quote, whoever looks at a woman to desire her has already made her an adulteress in his heart. These words from Matthew 5 emphasize that this is a interior one-sided act. It is the man looking at the woman. It's the man desiring her. It's a one-sided action here. And this introduces now the question of a adultery of the heart versus an adultery of the body. Because here, the man is just simply looking at the woman and desiring her. And this speaks of a adultery of the heart because it, it, it is not saying that the man actually commits the exterior act of having the conjugal relations with the woman and so become an adulterer. It's talking about something within the heart of man. So the question is, how can a sin of the body become a sin of the heart? And to answer the question, we have to shift the meaning of adultery from the body to the heart on the basis of the concept of desire. Do you have anything you'd like to add, Guillermo? I do, but let me save it for the end of the video just because it's a, a tangent to the point where um, I fear we would lose our train of thought. Sounds good. I look forward to it. So, Christ listeners, the words, whoever looks to desire, informs us that the man of desire is the man of concupiscence. And so this desire, it has both a psychological and a biblical interpretation. And both of these meanings will interpenetrate each other. And though we are in audience 38, it must be noted that these two meanings are defined in audience 40. So you have to either wait till this is, uh, we get video 40 published and then come back. Or you could just, I guess, read the book itself. But either to get a full understanding of what JP2 means by this psychological versus theological interpretation, you do have to go to audience 40. Now, Christ will appear, uh, Christ's words here appeal to, it's an appeal to his immediate listeners, and it's also an appeal to all people of all time to his message, the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount, by appealing to the heart of man, makes this message a universal one for all of humanity, since we all share the same human nature, and it's the heart of each and every one of us that is being appealed to with Christ's words. So, 
Now, JP2 remarks that Christ's immediate listeners probably took his words within the context of the wisdom tradition. Now, the wisdom tradition of the Old Testament is, is composed of these books, the Song of Songs, Job, Psalms, Wisdom, Sirach, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. Those, those are the books of the Bible that, uh, that constitute the wisdom tradition. And that's actually the focus of JP2's analysis in this audience. It is the wisdom tradition. So some general lessons from the wisdom tradition that JP2 observed, just some general trends, is that women are viewed as seducers that men need, need to be on their guard against. And two, there are several instances where women are praised in several eulogies as being the perfect companion for man, and you have this praise for the good wife. And there are many, many references to these examples. Just look at Audience 38, Article 4 for these references. There are so many of them that I didn't want to clutter our slideshow. I did want to give one example here. So this is from Sirach chapter 26. Would you like to read the quote, Guillermo? Yes, I would. Thank you. <clears throat> yes. A modest wife adds charm to charm, and no balance can weigh the value of a chaste soul. Like the sun rising in the heights of the Lord, so the beauty of a good wife adorns her house. Like the sun rising in the heights of the Lord, so the beauty of a good wife adorns her house. Like the shining lamp on the holy lampstand, so is a beautiful face on a noble figure. Like golden pillars on silver bases, so are graceful legs and steadfast feet. A wife's grace delights her husband, and her knowledge strengthens his bones. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Guillermo. Yeah, thank you. Another famous text is Proverbs 31. So for the interested reader, um, Proverbs 31 verses 10 through 31 is another um, eulogy of the good wife. In fact, it's it describes the good wife as a mighty wife. And the term mighty there is important because it's normally used to describe the heroic military, just think kind of like Navy SEAL spec op super dudes of the Old Testament. And that is being applied to the good wife. So that is another significant um, text to look at when it comes to the wisdom tradition and the depictions of women. So from this verse, or verses of Sirach 26, we can see just in general the praise and I guess almost a mystery of femininity that's revealed, the splendor of 
being wife. Now, to look at the overall wisdom tradition, we can see that you have frequent warnings being contrasted with these eulogies. And so the warnings are against the beauty and charm of women who are not one's wife. And that this is the motive for the temptation and occasion for adultery. And so these warnings, JP2 observes, they speak with a particular knowledge of the heart. And so they are a approximation. They are close to Christ's appeal on the Sermon on the Mount about of appealing to the heart concerning this adultery in the heart and this desiring. So the Old Testament wisdom tradition, however, does not get us to the preciseness of Christ's statements. So it's not until the New Testament with Christ, the Sermon on the Mount, that you get the transformation of the Old Testament ethos that the wisdom tradition was a witness to. This had to wait until Christ and his Sermon on the Mount. So we could say then that the wisdom tradition prepared the listeners for the Sermon on the Mount for correctly understanding the content of this adultery of the heart. Um, Guillermo. Yes. Um, yeah. You know, um, just real quick, I never thought of it that way, how the wisdom literature prepared the Israelites for the Sermon on the Mount. Because the Sermon on the Mount is, in a manner of speaking, like the accumulation of, not what I, it's not the accumulation um, of uh, God's revelation. But rather, the Sermon on the Mount leads to, say, uh, uh, the Pascal mystery. Well, a different topic, but um, but thank you for that point. I never thought of the wisdom literature as paving the road for the Sermon on the Mount. So could we go back to the second slide, please? This one or back more? Uh, more. More. So the very second slide after okay. the, there we right go. Right here. Yes, thank you. Just something that I... Um, wanted to point out about the kind of rhetoric that Christ is using. So the title of this of this slide is, but I say to you, what happens before this, but I say unto you, in numerous instances in Matthew 6, if I'm not mistaken, he says that phrase, you have heard that it was said, and then depending on what the law is, he'll talk about it. For example, um, excuse me, Matthew 5. Uh, you have heard that it was said, you shall not kill. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be liable to judgment. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you. That everyone who looks at a woman to desire her has committed adultery with her in your heart. He, he says he uses this kind of rhetoric numerous times here in the Sermon on the Mount. We know for a fact that he's referring to the law, 
in that first clause, just for lack of other words, of these phrases. You have heard that it was said. What is that it? The law. The law says this. What law? Essentially, the laws of the Old Testament, which, as tradition holds, Moses uh, was given to Moses by who? By God. Just Moses is the authority because he received it from the ultimate authority, God himself. So this, you heard that it was said, it comes from the utmost authority. In the end, God himself. Christ here says, but I say to you. So, so he's saying something about himself here. He's saying something that to his audience are shocked to hear this because, well, well wait a minute. You're saying something that, okay, it's not, if we think about it, it's not contradicting what the law says. It actually builds on it. But to phrase it the way you do, um, you, we received the law from Moses, who received it from God. Who are you to hand something to us, basically putting yourself um, if anything, above Moses, because Moses gave us the law. And you're saying, but I'm telling you, do this, do that. The only one above Moses is God. So who are you, Jesus Christ, to tell us what you're telling us now? And Jesus is essentially telling us who he is. He is God. I like that. Thank that's you very my thought, much. bro. Yeah, 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 that's my thought. Yeah. We can add on one more idea to oh, that. Oh, please. That Jesus is essentially presenting himself as a new Moses. Oh, yes, because, he, because he's on the mountain as well. Exactly. On the mountain, giving the law of God to the people. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, that's that's great for just kind of bringing more of the kind of the symbolism or yeah. to be more precise, the typology between Moses and Jesus, what's going on. Mm -hmm. And just also how this is really one of the Christological claims that Jesus is claiming he is God and where we see that in the Bible. I appreciate that, Guillermo. Yes. And I did paraphrase those um, segments a little bit. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, did you have um, anything else for us? That is all, bro. Thank you. Okay. Awesome. We'll scroll back to the end then. All right. With that, thank you everyone for watching our video. If you have been enjoying our content, please subscribe, like, share, and comment on our social media. And also please consider making a financial donation towards our research so that we can continue providing you great material you can financially support us through either patreon or paypal um, and we've also started um using or we set up ourselves as a creator through the web browser brave so another way of um supporting us is that you can directly give us a tip with the 
Brave's own cryptocurrency. And so you don't really, you don't have to do anything other than click on a button right next to the URL and it will directly tip us some amount of money. Or I should say crypto, whatever that is. And you could also do that just on our YouTube. So our YouTube and website are both now part of the Brave Browsers or creator. So there are three ways you can support us. Um, speaking of great material, you can find on our website, lenovelasfreet.com, many articles on theology and culture, society, etc. Lots of great material. And also our podcast, Guillermo. Do you have more information about our podcast? Yeah. In our other series, we address uh, a variety of topics, such as trends in culture and politics, always from a Catholic personalist perspective. Uh, we upload our episodes onto buzzsprout.com, and you can find our page through the Lenovela Spree website under our podcast category. And you can listen to us directly on Buzzsprout. Or you can access our episodes on other major platforms, such as Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. All right. And to, to reemphasize, we have on our website, lenovelspreet.com slash subscribe, all of our social media information you can find it all there are how to support us financially all of our various social media profiles and where our podcast is distributed um do you have anything else like that guillermo i would just like to ask our viewers and listeners to keep us and our mission in your prayers yes please remember to pray for us and with that we will see you next time. Bye, everyone. God bless.